0: Hey, it's Nick Austin, and it's a special time of year for us on Detroit Today, one of the two times per year that we engage in our on-air fundraiser, doing things a little bit differently for you, as this is the time of year that we are connecting with you about helping to support the station and keep bringing you great conversations. We certainly have them here. That's why we love that you listen, and they don't happen without your support. To do things a little special for the podcast, we are going to bring back one of those conversations about Detroit and the people that make the city special or issues that are very important to us here. But as I mentioned, none of that happens without your support. And now is a great time to get involved and become a member of Team DET. Help keep the community that you're a part of strong. We encourage you go online at wdet.org slash give, or you can call us 800-959-9338. Those are two ways to make a big impact by just giving a gift of support in whatever level makes sense for you. You can find out more information there, even gifts that we can have to say a little bit of a thank you uh, as to helping keep this station strong. You can go to wdet.org slash thanks to find out about those. But thank you for downloading the podcast. And like I said, that great conversation, one of our favorites for this week, comes next on the podcast. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 109 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. Remember the COVID health crisis? When the virus hit in the early months, there was a lot of fear as people were getting sick and dying at rates that were really scary. But not all Americans were impacted in the same way. Through March, 2021, black Americans died at 1.4 times the rate of white Americans. And right here in Michigan, in 2020, black Michiganders died from COVID at double the rate compared to white Michiganders. But we know that it's not just COVID-19. Life expectancy for black Americans is lower in comparison with their white, Hispanic, and Asian peers. Kat Stafford is a native Detroiter and national investigative reporter for the Associated Press. She recently helped produce a five-part series called From Birth to Death, which dives into disparities in health outcomes, and she shows that Black Americans disproportionately suffer from things like asthma, high blood pressure, and Alzheimer's. But why is this happening? What are the causes? How do these ailments show up in people's lives, and what are people doing to combat this trend? To talk about this, we have Kat Stafford here with us on Detroit Today. Kat,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you
0: so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you because this is a topic that I think a lot of us uh, know about and then a lot of us don't know so much about. It comes up very often, yet it still maintains uh, its grip on our society. But why was it important for you to delve into the story of health disparities right now in the first place?
1: So as you noted at the top, I was a reporter that was very deeply entrenched in reporting on how COVID was impacting Black communities across the nation. And I wrote a story that focused specifically on Detroit, my hometown, and just how it was just taking this this toll. We were losing elders, just people that have been pillars of our community for so long. And I got frustrated, though. I got frustrated with a lot of the coverage that I saw because I saw stories that would say, yeah, Black Americans are dying at a disparate rate. Oh, it's because of these comorbidities, meaning, you know, they had asthma, respiratory problems. They were more likely to have high blood pressure. Um, All of these different factors were being blamed. But We were failing as a media to to dig into the why or how did we get to that point. And so we created this project to really set out to answer that question to show how for centuries, for decades in, in America, we have seen these health inequities that have impacted generations of black Americans, literally from birth to death in many cases before we even take our first breath.
0: You know, Kat, also as a Detroiter, I do remember during COVID, especially at its peak, Seeing all of these stories, and it's like you have two different groups impacting with it the same way, right? When you're living here, when you're having family members, people that you know personally are suffering, whereas other folks are saying, what are you talking about? I barely see it. Nothing's happening here. Uh, So, yeah, having that personal connection to it is important, but also – Bringing the good information like you mentioned to the way it's reported is very important to folks. So I want to give you an opportunity to let us know right now, what did you find were behind these causes? What was what you discovered in your reporting?
1: So we talked to five different families, five different folks, five different communities across the nation to dive into very specific issues and um, ailments that are common to black adults as well as black children. And what we find, the constant through line to all of this was discrimination. Black Americans are more likely to encounter a discrimination when they inter-health systems, right? We also found uh, patterns in in, in a way to show how structural racism is really at the heart of all of these issues that we're talking about. And these aren't just personal anecdotes. We use data. We use decades of research. Uh, We talk to medical professionals, doctors themselves who acknowledge that this is a serious issue that has yet to be rectified in our nation. So it was really us trying to set out to couple this with personal story showing how this actually impacts Americans, but also showing that there's facts, there's data to back up that structural racism has not just created poor economic outcomes and all these other things that we typically talk about, but also health. The very health that we have as black Americans has been impacted because of our nation's inability to deal with structural racism.
0: Well, let's unpack that a little bit. So structural racism, one of the things that you are bringing up, right, that's going to play out in many ways, including just uh, access to wealth, uh, access to living, for example, uh, where you live, all of those types of things. However, one of the things you note in your report that uh, this impact is still seen regardless of wealth and social standing. So how are you able to separate that out? And what does it say if you're seeing these outcomes, uh, these poor outcomes with black Americans, regardless of wealth? What does that speak to?
1: So particularly, that point was very important for us to make with the first story, which spoke to the high Black maternal and infant uh, mortality rates that we see across the nation. Um, Black women are almost three times as likely to die uh, during childbirth when compared to white women. And when you look at Black babies, they're more likely to die, and they're also more likely to be born prematurely. But the key point here is that this exists regardless of whether you are poor, regardless of whether you are middle class or wealthy. It doesn't matter what your social standing is. You are still far more, more likely to get sick and die as a black American. And that has had disastrous impacts. We just had a study um, that was released a couple of weeks ago that, that showed this loss of life, this higher mortality rate that black Americans have experienced has cost our healthcare system billions of dollars. But just created this cumulative um, loss of, of, of millions of years of life. So it's just had a devastating impact. And I think it's so important to note that you could be wealthy um, and that still doesn't protect you from being on the receiving end of inequitable health care. And we've seen the headlines. Serena Williams herself almost died during childbirth because she wasn't listened to. So that is something that we are seeing advocates, uh, folks on the ground that are really pushing to try and and deal with this crisis.
0: We're speaking with Kat Stafford, not only a native Detroiter, but also an investigative reporter for the Associated Press. Uh, She recently produced a five-part series called From Birth to Death, about American disparities in health outcomes. Speaking of those stories, Kat, a lot of your reporting uh, was going to people, uh, discussing their interactions with the healthcare system, their interactions with their elements, and really bringing that forward so that people out there who maybe don't have a connection to some of these issues personally could learn more about it. Can you tell me a story that really resonated with you, that kind of uh, showed exactly what you're talking about and what you were looking into when doing this reporting?
1: So the last story, um, but first I want to say that every single story, every uh, family that we talk to, just heartbreaking um, stories and experiences that they shared with us. But um, it's just an amazing feeling to have someone trust you to, to bear and share these experiences with the world. But the last story focuses on Alzheimer's and the way that black Americans face that too, disparately. Um, we went and um, spoke with a, a family, a young black woman, who is the caregiver for her, her mother. Uh, Jessica Guthrie, she's the caregiver. Her mother is Constance Guthrie. Um, just this beautiful story about how her mother always took care of her, always showed up for her, did everything that she could to make sure that she um, would have an excellent start at life, but then all Alzheimer's hit. And all of that hard work that her mother did to make sure she was okay, now Jessica is taking care of her mother. Um, and she just really told us about the challenges of being a black caregiver, the the racism um, that she has encountered just trying to make sure her mother receives uh, proper care in the final years of her life, going to hospital systems and not being listened to. She told us this terrifying story about her mother was expressing a lot of pain in her leg and the medical professionals, they said, oh, nothing's wrong with her. She's probably okay. Come to find out she had a blood clot in her leg. So just hearing her experience um, just really kind of crystallized for me why it is important for journalists to tell these types of stories, but especially why I think it's important for newsrooms to amplify and have Black journalists who can really become one with the community, be rooted in this work, and tell these stories in a way that, frankly, we just have never seen before.
0: You know, it's really interesting if I'm hearing you with that, you're discussing that not only the way that the patient interacts with the healthcare system, but their caregiver, especially in the case of Alzheimer's, right? If your caregiver isn't getting the greatest access or information, that's gonna have an impact on the person that they're caring for, which is something that I think we don't necessarily always think about these conversations. But also what I'm hearing there in that story is about access to treatments, about, hey, do you actually have pain or not? So is this something where you would say or in your reporting you found That uh, if you uh, look different, if you're per se not a black American, someone takes your pain more seriously, or is it the access to a specific medical facility? What is it that bears out the cause that you go into the doctor and, and you say, I'm in pain, and they say, oh, nope, and they don't diagnose a blood clot, if that's what I'm hearing from you?
1: Yes, so that that same discrimination, that same racism, that same uh, bias that we really dive deeply to in the first story looking at maternal health, it, it connects all the way to the end of life when you know, you are a black caregiver, and you're still trying to to get that that level of care that your loved one needs. Uh, we we quoted a study, I believe, in a story that showed that black care- caregivers are more likely to say that they face or encounter discrimination and ra- racism. So these are real issues that that folks are encountering. And Jessica, one of the things she told us was she has an instagram account where she just encounters so many other black caregivers who feel seen through her and they all say you know if i was a white caregiver would i be encountering these same issues would i have to go to the hospital armed with literally all of the paperwork that i have to prove that my loved one is dealing with these issues probably not and when you look at the research when you look at the studies that have been done That's the truth. That's something that does bear out. So not only are you dealing with the stress, the traumatic stress of dealing with a loved one who is declining, you also have to deal with the stress of encountering someone who doesn't quite believe you, who might discriminate against you. So these are the things that we really um, wanted to amplify in this story in particular.
0: Talking to Kat Stafford, we're talking with her about her report from birth to death about American disparities in health outcomes. And we want to speak with you next. And Fat Cat, we're getting a lot of people calling in to share their stories. So when we return on Detroit Today, we will get into those stories. We'll hear from you and continue our conversation looking into disparate health outcomes faced by Americans here on 109 WDET in Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, having a conversation with you and Kat Stafford, a national investigative writer for the Associated Press who recently produced a five-part series called From Birth to Death about American disparities in health outcomes and perhaps even more importantly for us here, a native Detroiter out here doing this investigative work. But we want to talk to you as well. Big Neo on Twitter says, a big part of the problem is that medical professionals have a preconception that black folks have a higher tolerance for pain. So when we tell them something isn't feeling right, they gaslight us by telling us it is in our heads and not taking us seriously. You know, I have seen this come up a lot, actually, Kat, and it's a, a point that I remember reading about, you know, in the 70s and 80s. But I feel, still find it astonishing that in 2020, that could actually be factoring in to medical professionals that this class of people uh, can tolerate pain better than that class of people. Is that something that you actually saw or found in your reporting?
1: Absolutely. Uh, in the first story, we noted that I believe there was a study as recent as 2016. So this is something that's that's pretty recent, not something that happened decades ago, that noted that there are still some healthcare providers that hold these this false outright beliefs that there are biological differences essentially between black and white people, such as believing black folks have less sensitive nerve endings, thicker skin, stronger bones. Um, and these beliefs are things that have caused black you know medical providers today to rate black patients pain lower and recommend less pain relief so this is something that is still showing up in in medical settings today it's it's very disturbing
0: it's astonishing that that is astonishing i i don't feel like that it could possibly be taught in a medical uh in a, a class but whatever man that's that's wild as we move right now to robert in detroit robert go ahead you're on detroit today
2: Good morning, Nick and Kat. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to share a funny experience I had in a medical setting. So my primary care physician had passed away. Um, I've been with him since early childhood, and I have what's called athletic heart syndrome, which basically means my heart pumps really, really slowly. But otherwise, I'm indistinguishable from someone else. So, like, my resting heart rate is 30 beats a minute, right? Yeah. So I uh, go to a new doctor. And he goes through this thing, and he's like, oh, my God, something's wrong. We need to admit you. I'm like, no, like, look at my record. I have AH, uh, athletic heart syndrome. He's like, no, 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 we're going to admit you. Just I'm like, okay, I'm not an expert. Maybe listen to the doctor, right? At this point, you know, I'm a consultant. I, you know, yep. present very well. Like, everything is fine, but maybe he knows what he's talking about. So, He's going through his questionnaire, and he's like, okay, you know, are you on aspirin anything like that? I'm like, no, he's trying to figure out what I'm taking. And eventually he gets frustrated. He's like, just tell me what drugs you're on. Is it heroin? You're on heroin, right?
0: Oh, wow. Oh, wow.
2: (laughs) I was like, like, what? So I, I literally bust out laughing. I'm like, what about me? says heroin right now
0: yeah that's that's <laughs> he, wild.
2: he didn't believe it but that's pretty much into my story um he ultimately had egg on his face because when he eventually looked at my chart he see, he sees that my heart rate has pretty much been the same since you know i've been going to the doctor so um that's that's my story. Thank you
0: very much. I, I appreciate that, Robert, because that is something that I think that, again, for folks who haven't experienced it or know someone who has, they would think something like that couldn't possibly happen. But this is something, a, a type of story that comes up in your reporting often, Kat. What response do you have to Robert in Detroit in that situation?
1: Just hearing him took me back to sitting in Alabama in the living room of the two sisters who we profiled in that first story about black mothers and black babies. The younger sister who had a traumatic birth told us that one of the doctors, a doctor who had cared for her from the start of her pregnancy, uh, when she went back into the hospital a few months postpartum, she had been dealing with these vomiting and fainting spells, um, and she had bruises on her arm bruises from being poked by so many needles throughout the course of her pregnancy. And she's a diabetic, so she's, she bruises far easier than other folks. But he knew all of this, and yet he still questioned her why she had these bruises and asked if she smoked weed or if she took any other recreational drugs. And for her, that that was just mind blowing. It was frustrating. But again, this is something that's backed up by data. There's literally a study that just came out this year that shows that black women are far more likely to be drug tested or questioned about drugs during the course of their pregnancy. So I, unfortunately, I'm not surprised to hear of his experience in this different realm of medicine.
0: We're gonna go next to Justin in Sterling Heights. Justin, go ahead, you're on Detroit today. Hi, Um, thanks for
2: uh, taking my call. Uh, So the beginning of the segment, it sounded like we were going to talk about, you know, kind of the conditions that African-Americans are suffering from, such as high blood pressure and such. And the conversation kind of veered into medical dereliction that was maybe discriminatorily based in race. And that all is important. But I guess my question is, why uh, aren't we having a conversation about the food The FDA, the types of food that maybe black people have access to, the lack of nutrition that ends up getting them into a situation where they're in the medical system, which is rife with a lot of malpractice to begin with, regardless of race. I mean, the goal should be to keep them out of that system as a whole, and we should focus on food, nutrition, access to good quality food and, and things like that, right?
0: Well, Justin, I would certainly say that um, uh, I would agree with you that, uh, yes, we want to stay out of the system as much as possible. I think one of the reasons we moved into this portion is what's really astonishing to me is, of course, we understand where there's wealth disparities, where there's uh, food deserts, where you have issues like that, that will have an effect on health care. But some of the issues that come up in this reporting are even when you separate out for wealth, you have the same two people in the same economic circumstances, maybe even with the same food, that you're still getting these disparate outcomes, which I just find astonishing. But it's not to say that issues focusing on food insecurity, wealth disparities are not important to this conversation. And that's something that also came up with you and your reporting. Is that correct, Kat?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm really glad this question um, came up because I would uh, push back to say that, even when you're talking about nutrition, uh, food security, all of these things, racism um, is still an important aspect of that conversation. And what we show in our reporting is that if you look at some of the same communities that were redlined and segregated more than 60 years ago, those same communities today are the ones that are more likely to have medical uh, care deserts, meaning they're less likely to have access to medical care. Um, they're more likely to be neighborhoods that have higher uh, access to fast food restaurants. But there's no Whole Foods. There's no uh, healthy uh, restaurants or places for them to, to patronize. So you have to look at all of this in its totality to really understand how structural racism is, again, at the heart of this. Because those communities that are inundated with the lack of access to healthy foods are the same ones that have the higher rates of obesity, the higher rates of high blood pressure. So you cannot talk about health disparities, health inequities anywhere in America without looking at how racism shows up at the center of that.
0: Justin, I really appreciate your call and your point. And I also remind everyone out there that when we have big issues like this, uh, sometimes the solution is not always one size fits all. you got to look at the whole aspect of it. Attack all of the issues before getting to the hospital, after getting to the hospital, or seeing a medical professional as well. Excellent point there, Justin in Serling Heights. One of the things I thought about is this question of deferring to experts. And you know, Kat, uh, uh, I'm an attorney by trade, so sometimes people walk into my office or have a question about something, and they might tell me what the law is and I don't know that they're not necessarily correct there. So sometimes I'm like, hey, maybe you got to let experts expert some of the time. And that can cause some of these issues, right? Whereas where's the line between someone who has greater knowledge in a subject versus someone who's not taking care of my needs? This is something that I struggle with because I see it in all kinds of professional environments. How does that play out in what you saw in your reporting? That's
1: an important um, and I, I. that's why as a journalist, I, when I'm speaking to folks, when I'm doing panels, I ask people to question, who do you consider an expert? Um, yes, an expert is a medical professional, but I would argue that an individual is an expert on their life, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to have all of these perspectives um, in a story. Um, you have to show the side of the person who has endured the harm, has endured the mistreatment. But I think it's also equally powerful to give a voice to folks who are actually on the ground seeing this firsthand. And throughout the series, we uh, made a special effort to highlight specifically black doctors, Black historians, Black advocates, Black experts, people who have a lived experience, but it's also coupled with the medical expertise that that we were seeking out.
0: Yeah, that's very important also uh, to have that consideration right. One might be an expert in the medicine, you are more of an expert on your body. And, you know, even as a professional, I've never really been upset when somebody asks me a question or wants some insight into things. But I will also say, in our healthcare industry right now, it seems like where there's such this push for uh, efficiency that maybe not everybody always has the time. Again, depending on which medical facility you're at, people think, hey, we can spend less time with this person or when do we cut off? If they're asking a question over and over again, how do you separate someone who's uh, maybe uh, just what one might think is wasting your time versus another? And a lot of that goes again to selection, like you mentioned, having access to different doctors, different medical professionals, is access to different healthcare professionals, did that show up as something that was very important in your reporting in these outcomes? Or what did you see when it's like just being able to select your own doctor or your own medical facility?
1: So what showed up particularly, again, in that first story was a lack of access just to the care. So not only are we encountering discriminatory discriminatory care when we are able to access care, in a lot of situations, we aren't able to get care at all. Mm. There are large swaths of the country where there are just literally medical deserts. Yeah. And another issue that exists is that there just aren't enough black uh, medical professionals in the country at all. Um, but folks told me that that's, even that's not enough. At the end of the day, everyone should have the same level of cultural competency to make sure that they're providing equitable care to patients.
0: Yeah, that's something that uh, would be very important to look into based on some of the stories I'm hearing now and that we read in your article. As again, we are speaking with Kat Stafford here on 1019 WDET, native Detroiter and a national investigative reporter for the Associated Press who recently produced a five-part series called From Birth to Death about American disparities in health outcomes. You know, Kat, another thing that I was thinking about when I was hearing your stories, especially when it came to uh, situations where folks might have been accusatory or felt accused about uh, using drugs, using heroin came up in a story. I also think about, though, if I were to try to be as charitable as I possibly could, to a medical professional that uh, the society we live in can be somewhat litigious and you always do have concerns about if someone has uh, uh, narcotics that you're not expecting in your system, it can have an impact on health. Sometimes you have to ask these really sensitive questions in order to provide the best care. Maybe you could do it in a better uh, way than being accusatory. How does concerns of liability, lawsuits, does that play anything into what you heard or saw in your reporting uh, about these outcomes?
1: Yeah, you know, I think every hospital or medical system has uh, the right to want to protect their interest. Right. And I think that there is a need to ask these sort of sensitive questions, as you stated. But what's interesting about the the story that I noted about the, the young black woman who was asked if she was using drugs, it wasn't just that question that she was asked. It was also combined with other troubling things that that were stated to her. Mm -hmm. She uh, dealt with a nurse who questioned where her child's father was. Uh, She dealt with someone who questioned, well, is he going to sign the the birth certificate? So it's when you get those questions coupled with these other things that I think a lot of folks start to feel like this is that insidious form of, of racism, of bias that we often encounter as black people.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, It's not just the one question, right? People think it might be the one off. When you get a series, maybe eyebrows start raising. But uh, as we talk about all of these issues right now, Kat, let's think of solutions. What are things that you have seen that people are doing out there to try to reverse these trends and make an impact so that we can have some better health outcomes for African-Americans in America?
1: Well, in particular, from the federal level, we have seen in recent years, particularly looking at President Biden's administration, he has put a significant amount of money toward addressing the maternal health disparities we see, as well as the infant mortality issues. We have seen an expansion of Medicaid uh, being offered in, in a lot of states. Uh, So we are seeing movement happening on the federal level in terms of sheer resources being pushed to states like Michigan and cities like Detroit. Uh, But we are also seeing people actually who are in these communities, whether that um, are midwives or just medical doctors themselves and hospital systems who have started to implement a lot of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion programs that are focused on teaching doctors, nurses, and other folks who interface directly with patients, how to provide better care. Uh, So all of this is great. We're seeing a lot of momentum, particularly after coming out of the pandemic, you're seeing folks actually talking about this and how to address it. But again, a lot of people are still frustrated because they say it's not enough just to throw dollars. It's not enough just to start these Flashy DEI programs, we need actual systemic and structural change that starts from the ground up that really works to to deal with these disparities. It's very
0: important. If you're listening right now and there's someone who can make an impact, I challenge you, To be part of that solution, let's turn this into action and really make some improvement. And Kat Stafford, uh, investigative reporter with the Associated Press, it was wonderful talking with you to raise this issue and get into some of this reporting. Appreciate it so much. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks, Nick. We'll continue our conversation about health when we return and talk with Dr. Phil Levy about his mobile health unit that has been treating Detroit residents. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET.
3: A lot can happen in a day or just.
0: It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, discussing health care and health and disparate impacts that it can have on our communities here and. One of the reasons, perhaps, is doctors not making house calls anymore. That's something that we hear a lot, but right now here in Detroit, it's only kind of true. For a number of years now, a Wayne State University mobile health unit has been going around the city of Detroit serving residents. And while they don't go to people's homes, they do go to service residents at churches, recreational centers, and libraries. To talk more about what this mobile health unit is, what it does, and what are the kinds of common health issues afflicting Detroiters, we have Dr. Phil Levy with us. He is Wayne State University's Health Chief Innovation Officer and also a leader with the university's mobile health unit. Dr. Levy, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Great to be here, Nick. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Well, for those who aren't familiar with a mobile health unit, including me, uh, (laughs) what does it do and when did it get started?
3: So the story begins prior to the pandemic. Uh, I'm an emergency physician. I've worked at Detroit Receiving Hospital for almost 20 years. And as an ER doc working in Detroit, what we often see is not so much the acute problems that everyone thinks of ER from the television show. We see a lot of the ills that come from poorly managed chronic conditions like hypertension, diabetes, asthma, what have you. And what we realized prior to the pandemic that Uh, if we waited in the ER for people to show up, it was too late. How could we get out into the community? So you hear all the time about community outreach efforts, blood pressure screening events, and these types of things. But we really wanted to come up with a better way to deliver substantive care in communities. And then COVID hit. And prior to COVID, we had been working on a mapping program, a geospatial analysis, trying to understand where risk was greatest in communities. something called Phoenix, the Population Health Outcome Information Exchange. When COVID hit, we layered on COVID data, and we started to realize, as many did in the state, that brown and black communities across the region were suffering disproportionately from the pandemic. Why was that? I think your last speaker, Kat Stafford, did a wonderful job outlining some of the issues, but the real question is action. How do we get there? Right. We're the Motor City. We reached out to the Ford Motor Company, and they gladly came to the table with a couple Ford Transit fans and loaned them to us so we could take the mapping effort to bring COVID-related resources into the area's hardest hit. And that became mobile care, where we started. And the idea was, can we go to communities that we know have social vulnerability, a lot of older individuals, advanced age communities, those two factors early on were recognized as uh, very strong contributors to outcomes in COVID. Could we go into those communities and test people so that we could find individuals with COVID, separate them from those who didn't have COVID, and then hopefully not, you know, or limit the spread of the pandemic. We started doing that initially with mobile care, but realized, hey, we're going to be there. Why don't we ask about social determinants? Why don't we think about these other factors? And that's what mobile care became. It became a pandemic response that moved to portable population health, bringing services into the neighborhoods for people who need it most.
0: Very good. So then you talked about you got the loans from the different uh, from Ford, and how many different units do you have now, and where are you guys going to?
3: Yeah, this is it's a great story. Again, it's a Motor City story, right? Ford loaned us four vehicles, but uh, as part of the state's Racial Disparities Task Force. Uh, if you recall and your listeners recall, Michigan was the first and one of the only states that, that really uh, took to heart trying to understand why brown and black communities were so disproportionately impacted. So they created a racial disparities task force. Our work initially was supported by philanthropy, other uh, funding resources, but when the state started putting you know a lot of emphasis on this, we were able to get five vehicles from the state. We had another two vehicles that were donated by Steven Soderbergh when he was in town shooting his movie No Sudden Move a couple of years ago, and another one donated by Ford. So at this point, we have eight vehicles and a staff of almost 80 people that uh, go out and and send these vehicles into different areas of the community.
0: Well, you mentioned how kind of coming out of uh, COVID that you've converted to checking into different things now. What are some of the uh, health issues, the things that you're screening for that, most come up that people might not even realize that you guys are helping out with in the community? So first and
3: foremost, the single
0: most impactful health condition on the community
3: in Detroit is high blood pressure, Mm. far and away. Detroiters are almost two and a half times more likely to die of heart disease than uh, other You know, large metropolitan communities, uh, individuals in large metropolitan communities in the country. And all of that traces back to high blood pressure, some of it to diabetes, some of it to high cholesterol, some of it to smoking uh, cigarettes. Detroit actually has one of the highest smoking rates in the country at almost a third of the population uh, self-reporting smoking. So what we do when we go into communities is we measure people's blood pressure sitting in the front seat of their car. They can step out into our tents where they can get blood pressure measured, but we also draw blood and we look for high cholesterol. We look for kidney disease. We look for early signs of diabetes. In addition to that, we do social determinant screening, a standardized approach with community health workers, because we recognize, as I think many listeners do, that these social factors are so contributory to both the development of these conditions like high blood pressure and diabetes, but also the ability to manage them effectively. Mm. And so by incorporating all of this together, we can identify medical risk and social needs and then deliver Uh, services to folks, linking them to care right on site.
0: Right. So when you go into these health units, it's more kind of like a screening and an ability to see, hey, is everything going okay here? Like you might do when you go to your primary care physician for a checkup and not necessarily in a location where you're going to get care on the spot.
3: Correct. And that's an important distinction, right? When we think of medicine, there's prevention and treatment. And most of medicine focuses on treatment. People think of hospitals going for your heart attack or your stroke or even going into a clinic and getting these conditions, high blood pressure, diabetes, managed. But a big part of this is that many folks who are at risk for these conditions, may even have them, don't get screening early. And once they get screened, if they do, the linkage to the next level of care is really challenging. Yeah. It's, it's it's easy to measure someone's blood pressure. It's hard to manage that blood pressure both for the provider side of it and the patient side of it. And so what we try to do is bring things on patient's terms, come into neighborhoods, come into communities where people reside and say, we're taking away access as a barrier and bringing it to you. Where we really want to go down the road, though, is to say, do we need the bricks and mortar? Do we need people who we just engage in the community to now be inconvenienced by going to a doctor's office when we can possibly do all of this right there? Mm -hmm. If all you have is high blood pressure, we're able to give you medications in your neighborhood. We can work with pharmacists who can under who can understand what your needs are and help manage those conditions right there
0: well see that's one of the things that i think is really important here because i do believe for a lot of folks in the community especially if you don't know if you have access to health units or if you've got uh, different things that make you a little bit skittish of going to see a medical professional getting a diagnosis some people just want to avoid it right they don't want to know about the bad thing because they can't get any care anyway Right. So if they're coming to you, you're talking about, for example, giving someone access to resources for blood pressure. What types of things do you do for people that when they need to follow up to get something to help them out with this condition that they may suffer? What do you do to help them on that next phase?
3: So there's two components to this. One component, the typical pathway component, is we identify, hey, your blood pressure is high. We did this blood work. We saw your cholesterol was a little high. Maybe you're at risk for diabetes. We have our nurses on the back end call folks and let them know this information and to make appointments for them, whether they want to come back to providers that are part of the Wayne State ecosystem, Wayne Health is our physician practice group, or if they want to go to another provider, we're happy to share this information with that provider and link them. But really the future for us is a vision where we can deliver all that care right in the neighborhoods. So there's something called collaborative practice agreements, which allow pharmacists to manage conditions. We see this uh, with flu vaccines. You go to your pharmacist and they administer a flu vaccine, they're able to do that, Because there's a collaborative practice agreement between the pharmacist and the physician that says, yes, you can deliver this vaccine under my medical license and your license and everything's good. We can do that with high blood pressure in neighborhoods. And Mm. so we have a secondary pathway uh, through some grant funding from the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities to explore this model. In the future, could we bring mobile care into communities, screen people and right there manage everything in the neighborhoods where they live without having them come back to a bricks and mortar
0: clinic? Yeah, that that would probably help out a lot, right? One stop shop where you can go and sometimes, especially folks, maybe you don't have access to transportation as easily. Maybe things are a little bit further for you. It can be difficult to get to these appointments as we're speaking to Dr. Phil Levy, uh, Wayne State University's Health Chief Innovation Officer discussing the university's mobile health unit, which is a really interesting way of bringing uh, access to uh, some diagnosis, some medical care uh, uh, to people a little bit closer. But you talked about money. You talked about funding a little bit. Uh, I think we've been touching it a little bit. What about if you don't have insurance? That might be the first thing that makes you think, why do I even go here? I can't pay for the care afterwards. Right. The funny thing in all of this is care for hypertension
3: is not that expensive. These medications have been around for many years. They're generic and essentially free. If you were to go into Walmart or CVS, they, they run promos where you can get your hypertensive medications for next to nothing. The real cost of the care comes from when you come to the clinic we have to have staff at the desk we mm-hmm. have to have nurses we have to have doctors and all of that's billable encounters right. our vision going forward is forget the billable encounter let's make it all part of the process of just delivering care so our our motto our ethos for the mobile unit has always been you don't need insurance you don't need an appointment You don't even need identification, although obviously we'd like to know who you are when you come. We just want to be able to have you feel comfortable that you can get the screening services on your terms. Mm -hmm. And this speaks to something that's been talked a lot about in medicine, this idea of moving towards patient-centric care. We talk about it a lot, but it isn't really done in practice. What we have is clinician-centric or physician-centric care packaged that it's patient-centric. You come in, we may ask you more questions about you, right. or you're still on my terms,
0: you're still coming to my location. Instead, we flip the script here and say, we're coming to you. I, I think that's exactly right. That's what you see. It's about making the, sometimes when you uh, go to a medical facility, not necessarily feeling like you're the priority or that anyone really cares about you. A lot of what's happening here is also building trust in the community in terms of medical, uh, providing medical care. It sounds like that's what you're doing, but uh, are there any other things that you're looking into to make sure that that trust, that connection is happening with the locations that you're trying to serve? So trust trust is everything. So at this point now, since we started
3: this program in April 2020, we've had almost 89,000 encounters in the community, which is un- unbelievable. What that shows is a couple of things. First and foremost, people are... Uh, hungry or they have an appetite for this type of care. They're willing to come, but the fact that we've been able to sustain it shows that we've built trust in the community because we're not just coming on one day and we're never going to see you again. We go to community locations over and over again. So when people see the Wayne Health and Wayne State Mobile Unit in their neighborhood, they know we're not there to bill their insurance for for services. We're there to bring them care. And we're there to do it in a way that's not going to cost them anything. We have philanthropy and a lot of grant funding that supports this. But going forward, we're working with the payers, the insurers, to maintain a program of sustainability with the general concept that we're not going to ever charge a patient anything. Mm. This is uh, we, we, we say it's free, but it's not really free because at the end right. of the day someone pays, but it's no cost to the patient coming on site. And so we build trust through the community partners we work with, but we also build trust because when you come on site to a mobile unit, you're going to see folks who are from your community, they live in the community, they see the world and understand the world more similar to what the people coming out are trying to receive care, you know, for their conditions.
0: Right. Well, you've talked a little bit about some of the numbers that you're doing, and I do want to know about the metrics. How are you tracking the metrics? What are the results? Are you able to find out uh, how this has uh, occurred or how this has helped people of the community, not just anecdotally, but are you tracking this and what have you found in in your research?
3: Yeah, so a couple of things. First, we do screening blood pressures on everybody that comes through now. We weren't doing that from the very beginning. We do screening lab work. We find that almost 60% of people who come to our sites have elevated blood pressure or high blood pressure. These folks all need to get some form of treatment, whether it's diet modification and exercise recommendations, recognizing that the people who come out may not have the resources to access those things easily. So understanding their social needs with community health workers assisting is an important piece. We also screen for, like I mentioned, high cholesterol. We find that about 50% or so of people who come through are at risk for high cholesterol, are at risk for kidney disease. About 10 12% of people who come through either have frank diabetes that they may not have known about or they have elevated hemoglobin A1C, which is a risk marker of diabetes. So we're seeing a lot of people at risk. And then we also track people and see where do they go what is happening with them at the next level. Some of that is our funded research through the NIMHD, but some of that is just where we're going with our clinical practice, and we're in
0: the active process of auditing all that. I want to loop a call in right now. Joe in Rochester Hills, go ahead. You're on Detroit today.
2: Yeah. Hi, uh, great subject. Um, this is kind of off topic for this particular— uh, We'll make
0: it work, Joe. Go uh, ahead.
2: Uh, all right. Um, I was curious as to uh, what involvement the uh, AMA has um, in the problem of uh, coverage, and also, is there any um, anything in the industry to promote uh, uh, people of color uh, to be doctors um, to handle handle the disparity? Yeah. And, and just from uh, your 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 current uh, talker, I was curious as to what tele telepresence he may have, or is that in in the picture in the future? Sure, sure. That's
0: a good question. I appreciate it, Joe. We've got a couple of questions here for you, Dr. Levy. One is if you have a telepresence with what you're doing in terms of the mobile health unit. Another one is what the American Medical Association is doing to help black Americans, and specifically maybe even getting more black medical professionals involved in the field. So I'll take the the first question, a telehealth component. An
3: important thing to understand is that when we're doing screening and prevention-oriented work, the component that a doctor contributes may be relatively limited in the sense that I'm not the one as a physician measuring the blood pressure. I might not even be the person who's uh, engaging with you at the front end to discuss what the numbers look like. That could be medical assistant, it could be a nurse, or what have you. And the point I'm trying to make here is that for prevention-oriented work, actually relying on a physician may be a barrier, not a mm. benefit, because there's not as many physicians as there are nurses and community health workers, or you know, at least community health workers are growing. But the point of this is that we don't need to do a telehealth visit when someone comes and we're measuring their blood pressure. That's transparent. If you're greater than 130 over 80 you have high blood pressure and we need to do something about it. The other side of this is that once we draw the lab work, we won't get those results back for a day or two, but we have our nurse who's there and educated and knows what to do. And then we link up to that next level. And so what we're really trying to say is that by not having a clinician directly there on site, it's not a barrier. It's actually an advantage so that we can do true team-based medicine, which is part of what the AMA is looking at and part of what other organizations are saying. We don't have enough black doctors. We don't have enough Uh, black nurses or a lot of things in the healthcare system. But if you step back and say, what's the most effective way to deliver care? It's not going to be one patient and one provider. It's going to be one provider and a team of people reaching the masses. And that's the vision here. There's an adoption of this concept of population health, right? How do we deliver the most to the most?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, before I get out of here, I'm sure people are going to be wondering about how to get access, learn more about the mobile health unit, find out where you're going and uh, what you guys are doing. So what would you tell them? Got about a minute left.
3: Uh, First and foremost, you can go to waynehealthcares.org, and we uh, have a website where all of the activity, the mobile health unit, is published. There's a schedule on there that you can go to. You can sign up for some events ahead of time, but again, you don't need to sign up. You can just show up. We do six to eight events a day, six days a week. We're all over the community. At this point, we've done over 3,500 events with more than 250 different community partners, and so it's very easy to come out to to see us. So that's, that's the most important thing. And then, you know, you can... Look at resources like WDT to hear more about our, our work and our published
0: work. I wildly recommend that last point, Dr. Lee. <laughs> WDET is a place to go. Hey, it's great having you here. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks again for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Program director is Adam Fox. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethin. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Detroit Today podcast is edited by Jack Gilbert. Support the podcast by supporting WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Just go to slash give.